Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, to the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word or uh, you're unfamiliar with the layout of the Scriptures, please feel free to ask someone next to you to to look on with, and I'm sure they'd be glad uh, to accommodate. Our regular exposition of God's Word in the book of Ephesians brings us to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. And we want to read verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along as I read. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let's pray together once more. Our God, in these moments to follow now, we pray that what we have not you would give us, what we know not you would teach us, and that what we are not you would make us by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last Sunday, I started off the sermon by glorying in the Bible, and uh, I directed our attention to Psalm 119. We aspire here at Emmanuel Church to be Bible people, we like to say. And so we just looked at Psalm 119 and the statement there that the Word of God is said to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. One of the things we observed is that uh, one of the most precious gifts the Scriptures give to us is moral clarity. Uh, we are able to see, we're given a light in darkness. The scriptures are that for us. Well, this morning I want to open by glorying in something we call expository preaching. Uh, Expository preaching, very simply, is that method of preaching that seeks to take the subject of God's Word, the subject of the text in front of us, and seeks to make that the subject of the sermon. So many reasons uh, I have become sold out to expository preaching. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3 tells us. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we make it our pattern to go to the Scriptures and to consecutively uh, open it up and try to expound its pages because we want to be people who are formed and shaped by the Bible. And so we've been endeavoring to go through the book of Ephesians over the past several months And this morning we come in our regular exposition to chapter 5 and really verses 3 through 7. Love expository preaching. Convinced it is the best method to preach God's Word. That said, if you adopt expositional preaching as your chosen method of preaching, you're occasionally going to run into topics that you wouldn't necessarily have chosen to preach on otherwise. And such a topic is before us this morning. The text that we're considering deals in large measure 
with the subject of sexual sin. Now, I don't personally enjoy preaching on this topic. I'll confess that to you. It's not a a topic I relish addressing. I find this subject particularly hard to address. Uh, Hard to address for a number of reasons. Uh, Not least because, first of all, it's such a sensitive and delicate topic. Very, very delicate subject, fragile subject, a subject that needs to be handled with tremendous care. It's also a difficult subject to address in a sermon, in a church context, because the church, by its very nature, is a mixed group of people, isn't it? It's a gathering of men and women, and and boys and girls, and young and old, Uh, people with diverse backgrounds and perhaps diverse sexual experiences, and all of that conspires to make this a difficult subject to address. On top of that, it's quite possible, as it is true with so many people in our world today, I imagine it's true of many of us here in this room. Perhaps it's true of all of us, that to some degree, we are affected by sexual sin, uh, either by our own sexual sin or the sexual sin of another. Uh, So many of us know what it's like to be affected by sexual sin. It's also complicated, I'll just be honest, because there are visitors here this morning, and um, this is not a topic that we address every week or even frequently, and uh, I'm sure you didn't come this morning expecting a sermon on sexual sin. Uh, But the Bible, our exposition of God's Word, has brought us here this morning, and I assure you, God uh, makes no mistakes. There are no accidents. You are here, we believe, by divine appointment, and that is a good thing. Additionally, I feel a pressure in my own soul to want to be as direct on sexual matters as the Scriptures are direct, but on the other hand, to be as discreet as the Scriptures are, to be guarded with my speech and the exposition of this most delicate topic. All of these issues, among others, make this a difficult topic to address. With this I know. The Word of God is good. And this text is good. And God intends to speak to us by His Spirit through this text. And there are things that He has for us to learn. And therefore, we don't need to fear uh, grappling with difficult subjects. As long as we stay tethered to God's Word and tethered to what the Spirit has instructed us in, We're safe. And so it's a good thing, brothers and sisters, that we consider this text together this morning. I uh, contemplated a few different introductions. You're taught in seminary that an introduction is a way to draw people's uh, attention out on the particular subject. That's not needed for a sermon on sex. You just say the subject and people are automatically interested. So I'm going to go right into my outline this morning, our exposition of Ephesians chapter 5. Three headings. First of all, we want to observe sins to avoid. Sins to avoid. That's verses 3 through 4. Second of all, we're given reasons to avoid them. It's verses 5 through 6. Sins to avoid, reasons to avoid them. And thirdly and finally, avoiding those who do them. Now that heading is not what you think it is. Okay? We'll get to that at the end of the message. Sins to avoid, reasons to avoid them, avoiding those who do them. We'll begin with sins to avoid, verses 3 through 4. We'll spend more time on the first point than any other. Please follow along again with me, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's read together verses 3 through 4. Follow along as I read. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The Ephesian context, we've observed, 
in prior messages, previous messages, was marked by uh, somewhat extreme expressions of sexual sin. Uh, a man named Clinton Arnold, commenting on this text, says this, quote, uh, Illicit sexual activity was an enormous problem for the new Gentile Christians to overcome in the early church. Adulterous relationships, men sleeping with their slave girls, incest, prostitution, quote-unquote sacred sexual encounters in local temples, and homosexuality were all part of everyday life, end quote. And I believe based on information we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 2 and also in Ephesians chapter 4 and certainly in the text before us, that it's highly likely that some in the church at Ephesus had formerly lived lives marked by pronounced sexual sin, sexual immorality. It's also likely that some within the church were still struggling as believers to overcome sexual sin and temptation. Well, now I want to sort of open up some of these vices, these sins that Paul lays out for us, and we'll do them under two subheadings. First, in verse 3, we're given three sins pertaining to conduct, and then in verse 4, we're given three sins pertaining to our speech. So first, three sins pertaining to conduct, and sins pertaining to speech, all of which we're called to avoid. All three of these words used in verse 3, the three sins of conduct that are described, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, I believe all pertain to sexual sin. It's possible that Paul is describing three distinct behaviors, but when all three are taken together, I think every form of sexual sin is encompassed. The word translated sexual immorality is translated in some um, uh, English translations fornication. Uh, The Greek word is the word porneia, for which we get our English word for porn or pornography. In this context, it is probably a reference to actual fornication, and that is sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, which was a practice rampant first century Greco-Roman culture, also, by the way, rampant in our day and age. The word translated impurity, the second sin listed there, is a reference to all forms of uncleanness, not just sexual forms of uncleanness, but all forms of uncleanness. But indeed, one of the most prominent forms I believe Paul is addressing in the context is sexual uncleanness. And the term when applied to sexual impurity would encompass a host of deviant sexual behaviors. And then we have the word translated covetousness, which can also be translated greed. So this is a word that could be used to describe all forms of coveting. We could covet someone's property. We could covet someone's uh, 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 money and things like that. But in the context, given that it seems that Paul is discussing sexual sin, uh, this reference is probably to a reference of coveting one's spouse or coveting someone physically. So when Uh, Moses, when God gives to Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and we're told the Ninth Commandment not to covet, uh, in that commandment we're told not to covet our neighbor's spouse, right? I think that's the idea that is contained in this reference to covetousness here in our text. So these are the three categories, immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Though these categories can apply to issues beyond sexual sin. I personally believe sexual sin was uppermost in Paul's mind when he gave these exhortations. Now, one form of sexual sin that is um, certainly falls under these categories, though it's not conveyed by name because indeed it was impossible in those days, is the viewing of video pornography, which is sadly an epidemic in our age. I think it's very difficult to be faithful in the exposition of texts like these without addressing directly the issue of pornography, which has become so rampant both outside the church and very sadly within the church as well. 
The numbers are incredibly discouraging. I've seen statistics indicating that as high as 99% of American males under the age of 40 and somewhere around 50% of American females, so that number is rapidly rising, have viewed pornography, many on a regular basis. It is estimated that the average boy in America is introduced to pornography before he is a teenager. And in my experience working with youth and with college students, I found that to be anecdotally uh, true, even within the church. I'm convinced that if the church ignores the issue of pornography as an obvious form and manifestation of the sort of immorality, impurity, and covetousness expressed in this text, we will be unfaithful to this generation. The clear command of Scripture is that all forms of sexual sin are, be, are to be avoided by disciples of Christ, both outward physical expressions of that and inward mental expressions of that as well. Fornication, adultery, promiscuity, lust, lust, pornography, homosexuality, inappropriate emotional entanglements outside of marriage. Christians must separate themselves from such sins and must always be vigilant against such behavior. I believe that is the command of this passage before us. In our text, Paul says that such behavior should not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, what on earth does Paul mean by this phrase, these things should not even be named among you? What is he getting at? Let me spend a few moments uh, conveying what I believe Paul is saying. I don't believe that Paul is commending um, Victorian prudishness. Uh, when it comes to sexual matters, as if we should act as though sexual issues do not exist. Okay? There has been a great deal of research published over the last 50 years or so to demonstrate that avoiding open discussion of sexual issues in a safe environment can actually be tremendously harmful. Uh, rather than repressing deviant sexual behavior, such an atmosphere of prudishness can actually serve to engender and stimulate such negative sexual behavior. And so I'll just mention as an aside to the parents here, uh, I really do urge you and encourage you, don't avoid conversations about sexual matters with your children. Uh, They're going to learn about these things somehow, and you have the opportunity as their parent, as their God-given protectors and counselors and mentors, to address these issues from a biblically informed, safe, and loving perspective. And sadly, among so many, I'll just, I'll just speak directly to you fathers here. There are many men in our day and age who, in an effort to avoid awkwardness or some personal insecurity or something like that, they just avoid the topic altogether with their kids and leave them to figure out these things on their own. Might I suggest that such a posture that shies away from this sort of training might be a little bit cowardly. I encourage you, parents, let's speak directly to our kids. Again, put every qualification you need to put on that, obviously, at an age-appropriate time in a, the right environment, right atmosphere. But I encourage you, be thoughtful about how you communicate to your children on sexual issues. And of course, as I said, make every qualification. But back to my point, I don't think when Paul says that these things should not even be named among you, he's talking about prudishness or naivety, avoiding talking about these matters altogether. Additionally, I don't understand Paul to mean that Christians should never discuss sexual matters in the church or in conversation with one another, even in sermons as I am doing now. In other places in the Scripture, Paul especially and many other New Testament writers are quite willing to address and discuss sexual issues very open and transparent terms. So here's a test question. 
Would the Apostle Paul, according to this text, believe it to be wrong for two men to discuss how to combat sinful lust together? If two brothers in the church, or two sisters for that matter, they get together, they feel ensnared and tempted in sexual sin, they get together, they want to encourage each other, pray together and strategize, try to overcome sin. Would the Apostle Paul want to censure that kind of conversation? What do you think? The answer is, of course not. Of course not. Because such a discussion and such an intentional effort at accountability and fighting sin is in every way productive towards seeing that these sins are not named among us as a body of God's people. Mm -hmm. It's like a preemptive effort on the part of brothers and sisters who want to fight their sin so as not to bring reproach upon the name of Christ and upon his church. I think this text would actually encourage such conversations. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be identified as a body with these sins, and therefore let's combat them together as a body of God's people. So what is Paul saying exactly when he says, do not let these sins be named among you? What is it that he's getting at? Well, again, I think Clinton Arnold is helpful. He gets at this point in his commentary on this text. Dr. Arnold says, quote, when Paul says that these practices should not even be named among God's people, he is saying something much more than that they should not be talked about or discussed. He is saying that an outsider who observes the daily behavior of Christians should never have an opportunity to name one of these vices as characterizing the lifestyle of any member of the community. Here it seems best to understand Paul is using the verb to name in the sense of characterizing someone's lifestyle or behavior. That is, naming a trait as a hallmark feature of who they are. So Paul is not talking about occasional stumbling. He's talking about someone who's given over the sexual sin and so characterizes that individual. The word here to name is often used with like, like our names. Like my name is Alex. I'm identified that way. So, so Christians are not to be named as a sexually immoral person. That their conduct, their life is so characterized by this particular sin. So it's not that we cannot verbally name these sorts of behaviors, but we ourselves are not to be named or characterized by these behaviors ourselves. Whereas the world is known for this sort of immorality and impurity, keeping with the theme of Ephesians, God's new people in Christ are to be distinguished by godliness and purity and efforts at achieving the same. We're not to be a community marked by immorality or impurity. Rather, we should conduct ourselves in such a way that accusations of immorality hold no weight for the Christian. So again, two brothers or sisters getting together, seeking to help one another in the fight against these types of sins. That is in every way productive toward realizing the vision of this text. Let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, that if you find yourself susceptible in these areas, it would be in every way appropriate to find a brother or sister or pastor who you trust, who will be discreet and who will receive you well as Christ would receive you. To find such a one in the congregation or to grab hold of a godly pastor And talk with them deliberately about how to consistently, systematically, and effectively combat your sin. Obviously, this must be done with discretion. I don't think it's appropriate. I'm not encouraging you in a small group environment or a prayer meeting or something like that to just go off on your struggles with sexual sin. But find someone in the congregation who, again, will receive you as Christ would receive you. And who can be a real companion to you, a help to you as you seek to overcome the victory over sexual sin in your life. 
So to wrap this up, don't hear Paul saying, don't ever talk about sex or sexual sin. Hear him saying, make every effort to see that such sins don't characterize us, the body of Christ, God's new people, and take necessary steps to accomplish this. But now let's look, brothers and sisters, at three sins pertaining to our speech. So we're still under the first heading, sins to avoid. Now we have three sins pertaining to speech. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Just as our sexual behavior should be upright, so our speech should likewise be modest and temperate when it comes to sensitive matters, even sexual matters. Each of these three words, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, uh, they only occur here in the New Testament, which makes them unusually hard to uh, translate. But again, I think if we take the three of them together, we get the picture, don't we? There are at least a couple forms of speech I think that Paul is very obviously calling us to reject as Christian people. I think he has in mind, for example, vulgar humor and crude joking that likely would include sexual content. The sort of humor that is common in locker rooms, that's common on college campuses and in workplaces all across the country. Listen, there are just certain things that Christians should never say regardless of the context. There are just certain things we should never say regardless of the context we find ourselves in, whether that's in the church or outside it. There are certain topics Christians should never make light of, regardless of the context. And on this point, let me press in on the young people here. It wasn't that long ago, I was a young person myself. Okay? And I remember what it's like to feel the pressure to get in on the joke. In the locker room, out with the guys, or with the youth or whatever. And uh, there's this pressure to laugh at something vulgar or something crude or to get in on it and use similar humor. Uh, there's pressure to see perhaps a movie that is one long stream of vulgarity and foolishness. My young Christian friends, this may be a proving ground for you as a disciple of Christ. Will you be willing to dissociate yourself from filthiness, from foolish talk, and from crude joking? Well, just be willing to say, no, I, I don't really like to see those kinds of movies. All the girls are going to see this movie, and it's wildly inappropriate, and it's lots of... I just, you know, I, I just don't like seeing those kinds of movies. I, I don't really feel that's, that's upright, that would be good for me to do as a follower of Jesus. Just be willing to say that. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to you is you could be thought a little bit odd. And we could bear that for Christ, young people. My young Christian friends, I encourage you to be known for better. As I was preparing this message, it, it, was, it was such an amazing, uh, I'm tempted to say coincidence, it was probably a providence, uh, that I saw this particular ad this week. It was almost like it was referencing Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. It was for a new Netflix show. I won't say the name of the show, and I'll just confess, uh, Ms. Jenna and I have a Netflix account. I know many of you all do as well. I'm not asking you to get rid of Netflix, okay? But this is how they chose to promote their newest, latest show. They just had a picture of the show. And these are the only words, other than the name of the show, uh, promoting the show. Quote, it contains heavy drug use, sexually explicit material, and unadulterated idiocy. You have to check it out. No, you don't. I promise you, you don't. As a follower of Christ, you don't need to look at those things. What did David say in Psalm 101? I will put no wicked thing before my eyes. Let's just commit right now. There are certain things we're not going to watch. There are certain things we're not going to put before our eyes. 
And on a similar note, we should commit that there are certain things we will not say. There are certain subjects we will not joke about. Be willing to let others think that you're weird or naive for not appreciating vulgar sexual humor. Be different and stand with Christ. Listen, there's a, a certain kind of innocence that is in every way becoming of God's people. I'm not talking about naivety. I'm not talking about being prudish. But a certain level of innocence towards sin that is commendable. It's becoming of someone who's seeking to be like Christ. There's another category of speech that I think Paul would also censure, and I recognize that this is not as clear in the text, but I I think it's there. And that is speaking often and loosely about sexual issues. So this is not speaking in a way that's openly vulgar, and certainly not in a way that would approve of sexual sin, but nonetheless, it's a form of speech that views sex as a light thing, as a trite thing. Such speech does not view sex as a sacred and mysterious and glorious gift from God to be enjoyed to His glory in the context of a marriage relationship that displays the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather views it as a casual and trite thing of little consequence. As a general rule, brothers and sisters, this applies to our text and to other forms of speech as well. Let the tenor of our speech accord with the topic that we're seeking to address. The tenor of our speech accord the subject upon which we speak or discuss. Is Paul condemning all forms of humor? Certainly not. Okay, I, I personally think that, that more Christians need to learn how to just enjoy a good, clean joke. Okay? We're fans of good humor here at Emmanuel Church. But vulgar humor and crude joking has no place in the church. And certainly the scriptures censure such speech. We as Christians should be known for speech marked by greater purity. And this is where Paul goes at the end of verse 4. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, at first, that might seem a little odd. Uh, not where you think Paul would go. Okay, but don't be involved in fu- vulgar humor, crude joking, foolishness, but, but use your speech to give thanks. Almost like it's the opposite of, of the first. Well, in a sense... Thanksgiving is the opposite of covetousness, isn't it? There are a few ways to interpret Paul's words here, but I think Paul is saying that rather than being immoral and impure people, that is, taking sexual partners who are not rightfully ours, and rather than coveting what is not ours through sinful lust, we should be thankful to God for the good gifts that he's given us. That includes his gift of singleness, if that is what he has called us to, Or the gift of sex within marriage, if God has been pleased to grant such a gift. Listen, my single friend, it's okay to be thankful for your singleness. For the season that you are single, it's a gift from God. Thank God for the freedoms that he has given you in your single capacity. Again, God makes no mistakes, no accidents, no coincidences. If you're single now, you're single by God's appointment. And so thank him for the freedoms that come with singleness. And those who are called to be married, thank God for the gift of your spouse and for the gift of sex within marriage. Listen, sex is a wonderful gift from God. Now listen to me, brothers and sisters, generations of Christian history who believe that that sex was like a necessary evil that was only valuable for procreation and even then you couldn't really enjoy it. Listen, they were sinfully mistaken. It is the clear testimony of the scriptures that sex within a marriage relationship is a gift from God. And it's meant to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. 
And those who view it as sinful or wrong in the context of a marriage, that is an affront to God himself who gives it as a gift to be enjoyed. And without being inappropriate, I'll just suggest that perhaps if we were more thankful for intimacy within marriage and celebrated it more as a wonderful gift from God, maybe we would find more help in combating various forms of sexual sin. That's a matter for another sermon. All right, secondly, now in our outline, and we'll be much more brief on this point. We've seen sins to avoid, verses 3 through 4, now reasons to avoid them. Reasons to avoid this sinful behavior. There are two reasons given, verse 5, the character of God's kingdom. Character of God's kingdom. And then secondly, in verse 6, the fact of God's wrath. First, look at the character of God's kingdom. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And we need to be really, 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 really careful here. Who is Paul describing when he mentions those who are sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness? We need to be careful. We need to know precisely who these people are because we're told they will by no means enter the kingdom of Christ and God. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about anyone, any Christian even, who's ever struggled with sexual sin? Talking about lost people? Talking about someone who's committed adultery? Who's he talking about? This is where I think John Stott is particularly helpful and sensitive on this topic. Commenting on this text, this is what John Stott says, quote, We must be cautious, however, in our application of this severe statement. It should not be understood as teaching that even a single immoral thought, word, or deed is enough to disqualify us from heaven. Otherwise, which of us would ever qualify for admission? No, for those who fall into such sins through weakness, but afterwards repent in shame and humility, there is forgiveness. The immoral or impure person envisaged here is one who has given himself up without shame or penitence to this way of life. Such people whose lust has become an idolatrous obsession will have no share in the perfect kingdom of God. So you're a Christian person, male or female, and you've looked at something inappropriate on the internet. You've had an impure thought, or you've even committed physical adultery at one time. The call to you, my brother and my sister, is to repent afresh and run to Christ. The Apostle John tells us that if we as Christians sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says in another place that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my struggling brother or sister, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And your reaction to this text should be to go to him afresh in repentance, clinging to him for his grace and his help to forgive you of your sins and to help you to overcome your sins by his grace. And your confidence should be that he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. No, Paul does not have in mind the person who, as Stott puts it, falls into such sins through weakness, but afterwards repents in shame and humility. For such a one, there is forgiveness. And for such a one, there is the hope of heaven. And all I that for such a one, there is always forgiveness. My struggling brother or sister, you can always go back to Christ. You can always restart. You can always find fresh grace at his hands. Remember what Jesus told us about forgiveness? Is it 70 times 7? Even more than that. The Lord is willing to forgive and to restore. 
And I want to say this sincerely to those of you here who are keenly aware of failure in this area. Run to Christ. Don't hear me or the Apostle Paul say today that if you've ever struggled with this sin, you've disqualified yourself for heaven. That is not what Paul is saying. If you stumble, you can go again to Jesus and be restored and forgiven. But who is he talking about? Rather than those who occasionally stumble and then promptly repent, Paul has in mind those who make a a practice of sinning. Those whose lives are characterized by immorality and impurity. P.T. O'Brien, commenting on this text, says this. Paul is talking about those who have given themselves over to immorality, impurity, and greed. And even if they call themselves Christians, show that they are excluded from eternal life. What is envisaged here is the person who has given himself or herself up without shame or repentance to this way of life. Paul says that such people who have given themselves over to sin will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And maybe this is where I need to press some of you. If you are living a life committed to sexual sin, addicted to sexual sin, given over to sexual sin in whatever form, you need to seriously grapple with the realities of this text. I'm not talking about the person who occasionally stumbles. I'm talking about the man or woman who regularly gives themselves over as an unrepentant pattern of life to impure thoughts, to immoral acts, to sexually explicit videos and images. You need to grapple with the truths of this text. In that Sermon on the Mount that we began this morning, Jesus goes on to say, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Does anybody actually believe that? Better go into heaven maimed than into hell with both hands or both eyes. Listen, we may need to get serious with sin. Even violent with our sin. But Jesus holds out eternal life. To those who repent of sin and forsake it and cling to Christ, finding their soul's delight in Him. We read it, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. My brother and sister, to see God is better than anything. There are pleasures at His right hand that are better than the pleasures of lust, pornography, and sexual sin. We're holding out for a higher and greater joy. That is seeing the true and living God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Paul said that God's kingdom will not include those who live sexually immoral lives, but rather God's kingdom is reserved for those who repent of their sin and look to Christ. And then secondly, and I'll just say very briefly, we have the fact of God's wrath. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Very simply, Paul is saying that not only will those who give themselves over to sexual sin be excluded from heaven, but they will suffer God's wrath. And he says, don't be fooled. Don't be swayed by those who would deceive and encourage sexual permissiveness. 
as though, you know, what's the big deal? Everyone does it. You Christians are so stuck up and prudish. No, no, no. no. Don't be deceived, Christian. The wrath of God is coming against such people. Don't behave this way. Don't give yourselves over to sexual sin. Don't be deceived. Well, everyone does it. It's just a fact of life. No, no, no. Don't be fooled. The wrath of God is coming against such people. Therefore, repent and flee to Christ. And now finally, we've seen sins to avoid, reasons to avoid them. Now thirdly and finally, avoiding those who do them. Look with me at verse 7. After considering these sins, he says, Therefore, do not become partakers with them. That is, those who are given over to sexual sin. Now let me be clear on what Paul is prohibiting and what he is not prohibiting. In this text, when Paul says, do not be partners with such people given over to sexual sin, he is referring to partnership in the church, not relationship in the world. Partnership in the church, not relationship in the world. Paul is talking about partnership or fellowship, or we could even say church membership. He's saying people who live in immorality are not to be included in the church, in Christian fellowship. Not that they can't attend church services, can't have Christian friendships, but God's people are not to be marked by sexual impurity, and therefore they're not to be partners with you in the church. God's new people in Christ are to be marked by purity, righteousness, and godliness, not immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Therefore, don't draw such people into the membership of the church. Such people are unregenerate. Such people need to be saved. And the church of God cannot become the context in which unregenerate people are, are lulled or pacified into thinking they really are all right with God. Mm-hmm. Rather, the message to such people is to repent and to be saved and then to enter the body of Christ as members. I think that is what Paul is prohibiting when he says, do not become partners with them. However, and let me be as abundantly clear as I can be on this point. Paul is not prohibiting having relationships and sincere friendships with people who are enslaved to sexual sin. Moreover, he is not prohibiting sincere and genuine outreach to those who are enslaved to sexual sin. In fact, we have reason to believe that the New Testament would urge us to love and reach out to such people. The church must reach out to those who are enslaved to sexual sin, those who are confused sexually, those who have been victims of sexual abuse, those whose lives are broken due to sexual sin, either their own or that of another. The church is to open its arms to such people as an expression of the open arms of Jesus. We're to say with one voice that there's healing and there's help and there's hope to be found in Jesus. We hold out hope for the hurting. Help for the weak. Freedom for those who are enslaved to sexual sin. Jesus does not call us to cultural isolationism and separatism. No, he calls us to follow his example in seeking out that which is lost. He looks upon the woman at the well. Five Previous husbands, now a live-in boyfriend, multiple sexual partners, maybe willfully used and abused in so many untold ways. And he looks upon her, and he reveals himself to her. 
as the Savior of the world. And he tells her, you can have living waters. You can have me. You can have life. We hold out that sort of healing for those who are enslaved to sexual sin. Doors of this church are wide open to receive such people and to share Christ with them. To tell them of the hope and the healing and the help that is found in the Savior. Jesus did not allow moral revulsion over sin to keep him from showing love and compassion to the lost. He was a friend of sinners. He mingled with sinners. He got near to them and he revealed himself to them. No, Jesus is not prudishly shocked and scandalized by the sexual sin of others. Rather, he says, I can cleanse you of every sin. My church is filled with those who lived once as you do. But they were washed and cleansed. And they are still being washed and cleansed. And I will do the same for you. My unbelieving friend, my my friend who's enslaved to sexual sin, listen to me. You can change. Through the power of Jesus Christ and His gospel, you can change. You can be washed. You can be cleansed. He will help you to overcome your sexual sin. He'll renew your mind. And no matter what was true before about you, He can make all things new. All things new. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, He can make all things new. Think of how much ruin is caused in our world by sexual sin. Let the church be the environment, the entity, the family that offers hope and help and healing and change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when Jesus comes to us and when we come to him, it is not his mind, it is not his heart to inflict harm and to inflict hurt, but he is determined to bring help and to bring hope and to bring life to all those who come to him. Help each one of us now to come to Jesus, to know him as our Lord and our Savior And to fix afresh our trust and our hope in Him as a Savior for our souls and in truth the Savior of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.